Today is Monday, November 27th, 2023, and you're listening to the Ask a Christian podcast. I'm your host, Nate. Today we get into Ezekiel 14.9, Is God a Deceiver? No. So we talk about that, we explain a little bit, give some commentary and some thoughts. Uh, then we get into parenting, and we have a person who's a questioner who's asking um, you know, questions about parenting. They're about to ha- get married and soon after have children, they, they imagine. So um, they have questions about that and all things parenting, past, present, future, little babies, old teenagers, all of it. So uh, listen to parenting advice from people who have been parents for quite some time. Anyway, um, yes, share these links. Check out the Ask a Christian book. Learn how to have civil discussions with people who are less than civil while sharing the gospel of Jesus with people, which is the only thing that ultimately and eternally matters. Also, you can check out the Ask a Christian store. All of these links are in the podcast description and support this uh, Christian discussion, discipleship, and evangelism by buying a t-shirt or a coffee cup or something. Anyways, take care. Hope everyone had a good Thanksgiving. We'll see you next time. <clears throat> Can someone please explain Ezekiel 14.9? I had a Muslim challenge me on that and say that our God is a deceiver like Allah. Um, Well, I believe they they say Allah is the greatest of deceivers, right? Which I don't know if that's really something you would want as a uh, qualifier for a God. But anyway, are you looking that up, Todd? Otherwise, we will. Ezekiel 14.9. Yeah, I'm looking it up. Um, so my, so it says to me, I have a different version. I think I have the NASB 95. It says, uh, but if the prophet is prevailed upon to speak a word, it is I, the Lord who have prevailed upon that prophet. And I will stretch out my hand against him and destroy him from among my people, Israel. Uh, so this word, hata. Um, some way to describe it would be entice, deceive, persuade him, deceived, be gullible, persuade, persuade, deceive. So what we're, so what the Muslims try to say is that the Lord will deceive the prophet. And since he has deceived the prophet and the prophet be deceived, God stretches out his hand against him and destroys him. So basically the uh, the problem in their eyes is that why would God deceive a person and then destroy him because of his deception? I think that's the challenge. I mean, that's, that's the same thing as Pharaoh, though, and the hardening of heart. It's not like God just took a perfectly good guy that was totally awesome and made him evil. Compatibilism. Even if God would not have touched him at all or guided a step at all, Pharaoh would have hardened his heart exactly how he did anyway. So, I mean, with uh, before I even like really research this, like I'm thinking it's going to lead to like a very similar conclusion. Like, you know, if if it is if it says God deceived, that means these people are already deceived through their own like you know their own uh, their own selves or like lying spirits or something other than God. So by the time it gets to around, like, God deceived them, if God never did a thing, the exact same thing would have happened. They would have been deceived either, like, uh, you know, what is it when it says, um, is it James where it says, let no man say God is tempting them, but if anyone's tempted, like, it's because they've drawn away by their own lust and desires. Like, I'm thinking it's got to be something like that. Like, you know, if they're deceived, it's because of their own lust or desires or some other lying spirit or something like that 
So by the time it gets around to saying God deceived them, they already got what they wanted. Okay. Um, Chris, do you have thoughts? I, I just got here. I don't even know the passage. Ezekiel 14.9. <laughs> Muslims are saying God is a deceiver, just like Allah. Okay, let's see. The okay, verse is part of a... Mute yourself. <clears throat> this verse is part of a larger passage, which, you know, always read context. This verse is part of a larger passage in which God is addressing false prophets. And those who have turned away, it emphasizes the seriousness of false prophecy and the consequences for those who engage it. Uh, in the context of Ezekiel 14, God is expressing judgment against the false prophets and those who seek out false prophecies. It doesn't imply that God is a deceiver in the sense of being deceitful or misleading. Instead, it underscores the accountability of individuals who choose to follow teachings or engage deceptive practices. I love my brain. Okay, that was my conclusion, and it's also the conclusion of this commentary. Um, anyone have anything to say? It's important to note that different translations may vary slightly in wording, probably like in Isaiah at 45, where it says God creates evil. And everyone uses the King James because that's the only translation that has evil. All the others say calamity. Yep. So, Chris, how's your day? Just setting fires and dousing them in gasoline? <laughs> 100%. All right, all right. <laughs> How was your Thanksgiving? My Thanksgiving was fantastic. I cooked a 25-pound turkey. It came out perfectly. Uh, let's see. And went over to my brother-in-law's house that has a new kitchen that they just renoed, and it is nice. And this weekend, my wife and I are going away for our anniversary, so that's happening Friday. Ooh, how many, uh... How many, uh... Wow, that is awful. Is this your car audio again? Yeah, my car audio got jacked up because I turned it on at the wrong Oh. Is... What, what year anniversary is this? 28. Woo! That's Woo. a long time. Someone else got here. Good hey, morning. What's up? Good What's morning, up? guys. Did y'all have a good, good Thanksgiving? I did. I think I'm still in a meat coma. Uh, Chris, we also visited the world's largest McDonald's whilst we were in Orlando. Um, it was a cool idea, but eh. Chris, you're you've been married for almost as long as I've been alive. Uh, <laughs> I. <laughs> Yet still no one listens to me about marriage. <laughs> 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 
Hey, in my... not the only subject matter expert. Serendipity <laughs> was married just as long. So for I mean, some reason, like 15 and a half under my belt. I haven't been stabbed in my sleep yet. For some reason in my head, I like imagined you guys like maybe like three or four years older. And I was like, wow, these guys are like, these guys are like wizards. I was like, how did they acquire so much information? <laughs> uh, health and beauty, you're wasted on the young. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have a short day today. I have to be out of here in like 50 minutes. I have a meeting. It feels so weird to say. I have to go talk to other real people about real people stuff. <laughs> how um how long would each of you guys say you've been in the faith, like like with your walk with Christ? My whole life. Okay. Since 35 was, years. Yeah. I guess yeah. about... 30, I'm trying to think, probably about the same as Chris. I was, no. I was always raised Christian. I, I grew up, you know, knowing everything. And I yeah. was, I was 12 when I actually, you know, got baptized and, you know, made my, made my profession of faith. But I mean, I, I believed it before that. Um, through my teen years, certainly didn't look like it. People were like, what? You're a Christian? I'm like, well, yeah, why? Like, really? And I'm like, gosh, maybe I should get my act together. <laughs> like if, if my, my uh, you know, secular friends didn't, had no idea I was even a Christian, I'm like, wow, maybe I should change some things. Yeah, I've been a, I've been a Christian for six years. All right, Grasshopper, that's good. I didn't really grow, I think biblically knowledge wise until my mid twenties though. That's when yeah. I really started um diving in and wanting more than just a surface level understanding of the scripture. What would you guys say was the catalyst that led you guys down that path of like you're like, I don't want to just be like a Sunday Christian. I want to like wholeheartedly go into understanding what I truly believe. Like what like what was the catalyst for that in each of your lives? Uh I know exactly. <laughs> um, Google Plus. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I didn't do it. I mean, I knew all the basics. And I knew why I believed it, right? Um, you know, I, I've had my uh, my personal relationship with God. Um, you know, the book was more than just, hey, believe me, I'm a book. I promise I'm true. Um, right. But <laughs> the finer points, <clears throat> pardon me, the finer points and really getting into like, you know, going deep. Uh, was Google Plus? It was like an app, kind of like this, less crappy at this point, but they've really yeah. closed it down a long time ago. But um, I, I stumbled into it. I'm like, oh, this is cool. You can have video chats. I'm like, well, I don't really care about any of the stuff I'm seeing. And then I saw, oh, religious discussion. Cool. I'm a Christian. I like to have religious discussion with people. So I jumped yeah. in there, and it was basically a atheist deceiving. Um, yeah. And uh, anyways, so they they started like just they were railing on every Christian they could find, and. Then, uh, you know, it was my turn in the, in the roulette. So they started asking me stuff and, you know, I just happened like, you know, to, to know all the, you know, to have answers that I believe were right um, for all the stuff they asked me, um, you know, because I've been a Christian like forever. And I'm like, well, yeah, it's not about a book because it says it's a book. It's like, otherwise you'd believe Harry Potter. And they're like, oh, that's what I was going to say. I'm like, oh, well, 
Maybe God's real. Anyway, so after that, though, I thought, well, you know, I could do this, too. Let me do it from an actual, like, you know, not deceiving point and be like, hey, yeah. ask a Christian. And, uh, you know, let's see what the Christians have to say about their own religion. So since that point, uh, you know, the whole ask a Christian thing started. And, you know, it, it was lots of, like, good, knowledgeable Christians who came along and, like, you know, offered advice, offered opinions, tons and tons of, like, you know, all different types of religions and non-religious people. Um, so, you know, they, they ask a lot of tough questions. And, uh, you know, it took a while, but uh, every single time I found that, you know, the biblical-based answer is the one that I happen to agree with. Like, you know, confirmation bias, blah, blah, blah. But it's like, well, look, do you want me to lie to you? Like, I believe this is true because it has the best standing. Like, it, your question is this. Its answer is this. And I'm not convinced by your answer. So, you know, maybe you should get a better argument. Um, right. Anyway, long answer to your question, but that's why. That's when. No, I appreciate it. Chris, did you want to go next? I forgot the question. I was asking, what was the catalyst to let, uh, like, so post coming to the faith, what was the catalyst to lead you to saying, okay, I don't want to just attend Sunday class, like Sunday classes or like just Sunday worship services, but I actually want to actually dive deep into the comprehension of the under under layers of my faith and then how, why I believe certain things. Chris was reciting the Westminster confession while he was yet in diapers. <laughs> I was actually <laughs> radically saved as a pretty rotten teenager. And, uh, I, uh, I, when I came to faith immediately started studying. So, you know, I was listening to preachers, um, lots of MacArthur early on and Sproul, um, and that led me to read books, um, led me to get, uh, I, well, actually my uncle, um, who had died, we had moved into his house, uh, cause we moved from Chicago to Florida and we're staying with my aunt. Um, right. and he was a SDA guy, but he had a bunch of reference books. And so that was the beginnings of my library as I threw out all the SDA garbage and I kept all of his Christian <laughs> reference books. And, um, yeah, so I so I immediately started looking at vines and I had um, interlinears and, um, you know, I learned how to use strongs and youngs concordances and all that stuff. So I I was able to start reading and learning and getting deeper much quicker, probably when I was 16, 17. Yeah. What about you, Serendipity? And then we'll say hello to CEO. <laughs> um, well, I I always, I, like, I was raised in the church. I came to Christ very early, and I <laughs> did have a personal relationship with my Savior. But, you know, becoming more acquainted with the Scripture on a more intimate level really didn't come for me until um, I made the, you know, I married young and dumb. And I married an agnostic and I just did not have the foresight of thinking like what that would mean for my family um, as far as having a spiritual leader. And right. of course, we immediately started having children and, um, you know, it suddenly it mattered. It it became a real source of contention for me, and my husband was always just one of those really, um, you know, but how do you know, like, the science says, blah, 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 and it just so happened that 
I was praying about how to be a good witness to him. And our church started a seminar, Do Science and the Bible Conflict? And I got him to agree to go with me. And out of that bore this love that he and I had for doing Bible studies and scripture studies. Yeah. Um, We were complete and total opposites on so many regards, but that was one thing that we both loved to do. So that was how we spent our, (laughs) you know, our spare time um, was jumping into that. And then I went through kind of a little crisis of faith because shortly thereafter, my husband was saved. My sister lost her husband and both of her children. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. I think you shared this. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you go through something like that and, you know, that tends to make you cleave a little harder. (laughs) And you know know what I've learned, though? Like, I lost my own husband um, a couple years ago. And, um, you know, what I found is that it's so funny, all these books and, and studies that we did, like, I, I found that, like, as I go back through them now, um, you you learn more every time. Like, you're rewarded and you're blessed with more knowledge, more understanding, more knowledge every time you do it. So don't right. rest in that contentment of thinking, well, I did a study on that. I feel good about that book. Time to move on. Like. I, I just can't believe how much every time I go back through, I, I glean more and more wisdom. Right. Yeah. So how would you guys, sorry, actually, um, go ahead, Nate. I know you're talking with, uh, CEO. Um, how you doing, CEO? I'd like to hear what he had to say, but. Uh, I'm good. Um, hope you had a great holiday. Um, I'll answer the question real quick. So I was 24 in grad school, highly analytical, and I wasn't Christian, and I had an experience at, at a, a church that touched my heart. And then um, my first couple months as a Christian, I, I mean, honestly, I thought Christians were very weird. Um, but then I started having some additional personal experiences, dreams, this sort of thing. And that ended up influencing me and making me more curious about the Bible and, and diving in deeper. Mm. Uh, what was your follow-up, Felix? No, I was I was kind of just curious. Like, I mean, I don't know if... If some of you guys are, if if a majority of you guys have children and what that dynamic has been like versus what you probably assume it would have been like not having the knowledge, like say, for example, okay, you're, you're, you're well-versed and you're knowledgeable in terms of the faith walk and then the understanding of what it means to, to follow Christ and what he's calling us to, to do in the nature of the world in which he built, how that looks like when you're raising your child up to help them understand who Christ is and who they're being called to be in this specific world that we reside in. Um, Do you feel like that all the knowledge you guys have had adds to how you help raise your children? Or do you feel like it's more so too advanced? So it's more so for like discussing things with like peers who aren't of the same faith or are of the same faith, but lack of understanding. Well, what do you what do you feel like that, that what do you feel like the knowledge lies most valuable and where do you feel like it doesn't seem like it applies too much so well I mean for for raising kids like you know all all the which is weird to talk about knowledge right because you know knowledge is like 
kind of the it's like relationship not just like book knowledge but i get what you mean like you're going to get intellectual knowledge and you're going to understand the scripture you know as, right. as you have this walk with christ but i'd say the biggest thing is how um you know how we raise our kids so it's not like you know we're teaching our kids like you know deep theology that they can understand but since you know we are familiar with this and we've been doing this forever that kind of influences so the kids may not have any idea why we why we parent a certain way or why we we take different points of view on certain things but yeah. for for all they know it's just because mommy and daddy said so uh, but for what mommy and daddy do it's because we've been through this we've been in the situation you know we've uncovered these like rocks and looked under them so that influences how we do it so it's still a benefit to them even if they can't understand it yet um but you know we also try like as much as you know as much as i can i try to dumb it down to like you know where they can understand it so you know i mean it's no different than like you know you'll give a kid a child's bible and it's got you know like uh, daniel and the lines in like the cat's all like smiling the big line has all like smiling and it's nice and happy um, right. You know, and it doesn't get into the gory details that before the cat was, you know, <laughs> his mouth was shut. You know, it ate lots of people before it. It doesn't tell that. Right. So, you know, we, we try to, like, make it appropriate for their level what, with what they can actually comprehend and understand. So I'd say that's that's the biggest benefit. And obviously, as they grow and get older and more more able to comprehend stuff, you know, I'll tell them more about what I think. Yeah. I mean, again. Chris's is like a, a little Martin Luther, like already, like, you know, apparently this kid is, is like ready to be the abbot of a monastery. <laughs> JC. Oh my gosh. JC was at church last night. I was like, how was church? And he's like, good. I was like, yeah, what, what did you guys do? And he was like, well, there was a message. I don't remember what the message was about. And then he was like, I had ended up having to explain God's sovereignty to my small group. <laughs> and I'm like, Okay. <laughs> Nice. Yeah, I guess I'm asking because I'm getting married in two weeks and we're so she she has a bit of a sickness. So we have to try for kids not too after not too long after we get married. And I'm just kind of thinking about what I'm going to be like as a father and then kind of preparing my mind and like my approach and making sure that I'm starting off with the right with the right footing. I mean, obviously, obviously like future, all you got to worry about is diapers and baby food. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. And never introduce them to a piece of sugar or candy or cake. As long, just oh, never that's do it. down a path of destruction. <laughs> yes, because my kids were like completely fine eating like, you know, squashed peas and carrots and they loved it. They wanted it. And then one day there was like a birthday party and my wife's like, oh, let's give him a little piece of cake. It'll be fine. Guess what? Not fine. Ever since then, they do not like fruit and stuff like that with the same fervor they once did. So, oh, man. Anyway, <laughs> best advice short of salvation right there. <laughs> The best advice is don't take any advice. What? <laughs> the best what? The best advice is don't take any. The best parenting advice I ever got was don't oh. take any parenting <laughs> advice. Because, like, every child is different, and you're going to know your child the best. And there's some certain strategies that will work on all humans. Um, 
but you know anybody and Dippity's a lot further along in this endeavor than I am but like you know people will tell you with grown children like kids are individuals and all of the parenting advice you're going to get is going to be from other people's particular experience with their particular kid right in the in the Christian lens how do you guys perceive nature versus nurture Yes, Steph, how do you perceive that? <laughs> uh, is the child elect or no? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, well, I have three. I have two girls and a boy, so I have a couple different metrics that I can go across. The three of these children are incredibly different from each other. So, I mean, there certainly is a nature versus nurture thing. I have to treat my three very differently, you know, like one you know, my daughter doesn't care about timeouts. She just does not care. She'll sit there and twiddle her thumbs and laugh about how much she loves timeout. Um, but my son <laughs> is, <laughs> she's just the worst. But then my son, okay, listen, when my son is strapped into the car in a seatbelt and he's bopping his sister or something and we tell him you're in timeout, he's devastated. He's like, oh, like he's in the car already. We can't put him anywhere. He's already in the seatbelt. Just the word timeout is so traumatic for him. He's like, oh, not a timeout. And then he asks, can I get out of timeout? We're like, no. <laughs> uh, that works beautifully on my son. It does nothing for my daughter. Uh, so for her, I have to take things away. Uh, so, you know, the nature versus nurture thing is very real. Uh, but I guess I'd have to know more specifically about what you're applying it to. Um, Steph, I'm yeah. curious, how, how, how different do you think your kids are maybe because your parenting style also adjusted from the first to the second to the third child, or do you feel like you've been pretty consistent? Um, there's some of that. I, so, I mean, there's this birth order thing that is so true. I expect a lot out of my eight-year-old because she is eight and the five-year-old is not, like, I can see how much more capable she is. So, you know, she has more responsibilities. I ask more of her. But in terms of, I think that when they were all one, two, three, you know, it's like we did potty training the same way. We did dinners the same way. We did punishment the same way. And then we adjusted and reacted to the different kids. That's a good question. I, I guess there's no real way to tell. I feel like I've been pretty consistent. I feel like I've been consistent too, but my children will tell you that we were not. <laughs> did you, would they say you have a favorite? I had five. Um. Well, they all think they're my favorite, so I feel like I did that right. <laughs> Good job. I have I one brother like... that is definitely my mom's favorite, and it's bullcrap. Yeah. <laughs> they all think that they're my favorite. So as far as that goes, I'm like, well, I must have done something right. Cause yes, well done there. That was, that was the plan. But they will absolutely. And in retrospect, like, I can look back, and yeah, I think that we were definitely stricter with the older two I think we got a little more laxed as they came up through the ranks <laughs> um my uh I mean, some of it's trial and error like you figure out and and I agree like I have five and all five of mine um are as different as night and day like what worked for one wasn't necessarily what was going to work for the next one my father has told me that I am both his favorite and the worst child to raise of nine kids. And I'm just, I'm, I'm confused. And I'm like, Hey, like, cause he, he told me personally, he was like, you know, 
sometimes when I think about it, you're my favorite child. And I was like, that's not right to say. You should equally feel that about all of us. And then in front of my fiance, she was like, who was the hardest? And he, she was, he was like, him. <laughs> and I was just like, wow. <laughs> Felix, what number are you out of nine? I am three. Oh, wow. Okay. So you honestly know more about parenting than the parents in here. I'm just going to put that out there. <laughs> <laughs> but um, no, I mean, I was, okay. So my fiance says, she's like, based on how things sound, I was a troubled child. And I was just like, no, I had reasonings for doing things. It, I didn't, like, I understand why he thinks I wasn't, a why I was the hardest is more so because this is going to sound bad, right? But like, I wasn't like edgelord. I wasn't like, oh, I'm, I'm angsty. It was more of like, I didn't get a good enough reason. So I don't, I don't agree with your decision. Um, and my dad didn't like that. Like there was, there was one time I was just like, Hey, five houses down the family, you know, they're having a sleepover, may I go to sleep over there? And he was like, no. And I was like, well, we're going to be working on our homework together and our midterms are coming up. And he was like, no. And I was like, can I get a reason why? And he said, because I'm the parent. And I was kind of annoyed and I was like, that's not a good enough reason. Um, and he said, you're not going. So I said, well, I, I'm going to go. And he said, if you leave, don't come back. And I was like, okay, I mean, that's a sleepover. I'm going to stay over the night. Um, and he got upset, stormed off and I went there anyway. And then he was like blowing up my phone and he was like, where are you? And I was like, I told you I was going to the sleepover. And then my friends in the background are like, hey. And then he was like, come home right now. And I was like, why? And he's like, because I told you to come home. And I was like, is there something wrong? And he was like, it doesn't matter. I told you to come home. And I was like, you're not giving me any reasons at any point. So I'll just see you tomorrow. Now, my my fiance was like, that's extremely rude. She would have gotten beaten. And I was just yeah, like, beat too. yeah, I'm, I'm about to get my belt out, Felix. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty bad. <laughs> But my, you know what my parents would have done was cut my phone service right then and there. Like there would be no phone at the end of it. Do you know what I mean? Like the door would be locked. I'd be sleeping outside and there'd be no cell phone service at all. But yeah, so that, I mean, that's kind of how things went. I mean, like my dad tried to Wait, ground when, me. When you got home. Oh, I said, Hey dad. And he was just like, he started laughing and Are he was like, serious? How he was like, so you think... okay. <laughs> because my dad has a, okay, to be fair, because like, my, my fiance finally saw it. I was like, yo, you think like it's because I was some like wrong doing kid. But I was like, I had to grow up faster in some areas, better faster than the others to make decisions on my own apart from my parents, because my parents weren't making wise decisions. Um, An earlier example of why I started thinking more for myself for reasoning other than my father was because there was a time where we went to a family party, we were driving back and he was kind of drunk and tipsy. And he has, he had asked me to take the wheel and drive. I was 15 years old and I was like, I'm not doing that. Um, so I, even though I knew how to drive because I had been practicing in like the, the parking lot of our house, like kind of going back and forth, I was just like, that's not legal.
And he was just like, just get us home. And he's like, I'll guide you. And I was like, no, I'm not doing that. Um, I was like, you're not, you're not in the right state of mind. And I'm not equipped to do that. And if we get pulled over, it's going to be a really bad situation. I was telling him, I was like, we need to just pull over the side of the road until you're sober up and until you feel better. And then we can go. And I told him, I was like, I'm fine sleeping in the car. And he got upset. And that was after that moment. I was like, I can't trust his decision-making skills. So, what do you think, Chris? To be praised or to the woodshed? Just oh, Chris, Chris, Chris is gone, dude. Chris Chris had a oh. phone call on it. Then he dropped, yeah. Goodness. All right. Steph, then. <laughs> Listen, I have a story that I've told in this room before where I was not getting along with my parents. And I was very good. I never one time did what that what you just described because once when I was young, I was having like an argument with my mom and they removed everything from my bedroom except the mattress and took the door off. Like that, you know? And so I had an empty room with a mattress in it. I didn't have sheets or a pillow. They had like a mattress and a blanket. And it was like mm-hmm. that, for, I don't know, in my memory, it feels like it was probably 10 years, but I don't know, maybe it was like two nights. I think I was like eight or nine. Uh, if I think about that apartment. Yeah, it was before I was 10. Anyway, so I never, like, I knew that they were going to just make my life miserable. So I never did. Like, I would never, if they said, don't go anywhere, if they said, go to your room, if they said this, that, I would do it. But I was also incredibly mouthy. So there was this period where I was, like, not getting along with my parents at all. And it had a lot to do with my brother and da da da. Anyway, I had this job that my best friend's dad was the manager. And so when I was 15, when I was 14, I got hired at this pizza place, but I could only work limited hours. And, you know, you have to be home by a certain, you can't be like driving after a certain time on a junior license. So I had to work like immediately after school from, you know, three to seven, and then I had to leave. So whatever, I was doing this like four weekdays. And so I'd gotten in a fight with my parents one morning and I was driving my brother to school and blah, blah, blah. And so I leave the school at the end of the day to go out to the parking lot to get my car. I was 16 at this point and I'd been working at this place for two years and there were like, wait, this was during homeroom. Okay. It was at the end of the day. Someone calls me down and I leave the school, whatever. There's police in the parking lot and there's a boot on my car and they have a tow truck pulling it away. Because I was sassy that morning, my parents stranded me at the school with no way to get to work and no way to get home. And I had paid them for that car and they took it and then they gave it to my brother for free, even though it was my car. So that's the kind, right? My husband just walked in as hearing me tell the story (laughs) for the 90th time. I'm still mad about it. Yeah, I think, I think for me, it was just. I think I was like on this weird, like stoic phase and I just chose not to have attachments to things. So it was just like, it didn't mean anything to get grounded. Cause I was like, okay, I was going to do something else. And he was just like, no TV. And I was like, all right, I'll read a book. And he was like, no books. And I was like, all right, I'll just sit there and think. Um, no thinking. <laughs> <laughs> I have three pieces of advice that I think carried over very well and translated over very well for all of my children Mm -hmm. pray with your children right they don't know how to pray if they don't see you model the behavior so praying with your children is first and foremost um the second piece of advice um have dinner with your children every night You'd be amazed at the conversations and the way that you get to know your children and the things that they're thinking and the problems that they're going through by simply sharing a meal with them and engaging in conversation. 
we always they had to be home for dinner like that was just the rule um, right we always did best and worst of their day and it really gets them talking you know and that's the best way to know what's going on with your kid um <clears throat> and the third piece of advice is um choose your battles wisely under you know don't say no for the sake of saying no um understand your nose and and why their nose i found that we that was one that we got better at um as we started having more and more kids was understand the things that were worth fighting for versus the things that weren't and um i found that they're a lot more amicable to the nose when they don't feel like you don't just hand them out willy-nilly right Thanks for sharing well, that. I, yeah, I mean, I, I did too. Um, one, be consistent even when you emotionally don't feel like it. Um, so my, my son is very similar to how you described yourself, Felix. And so last night, we're having conversation. I, I was actually working and he asked me a question. I was like, hey, you know, I, I don't have time to answer that right now. And he goes, well, if I don't ask questions, I won't be successful. And so oh, wow. <laughs> this is something I obviously taught him when he was younger. So I had to stop what I was doing and answer all the questions. Right. And yeah. I always answered every question from him. I always made the effort to, and, and some of his questions are difficult and some of them, um, you know, like are even too advanced for his age on topics I'm not ready to discuss. And I would at least figure out some way to answer it and say, the rest you'll get when you get older. But I always answered the questions. And even if it was about punishment and why, I tried to answer every question so he could have understanding. The second piece of advice is to, you can teach lessons in kind of really non-traditional ways. So for instance, when he was younger and he would play like the Legos Marvel superhero game, like right. I would I would fuss at him for like focusing on hitting the fire hydrant and getting coins when there's an old lady getting robbed. Right. I'll be like, no, you have to prioritize. Help the old lady. So <laughs> those would be my two lessons. Thanks. No, man, just wing it. Jesus will fix it later. It's fine. Just save up. For oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> just like, forget I, all that. I already have a therapy fund for my kids, so Jesus will oh. get them fix them later. <laughs> you know what? It, okay, I used to, I'm a very anxious person. No one in here knows that about me. <laughs> but uh, I used to be very concerned about my parenting. Um, when Chad and I first had our daughter, we were like living in his parents' garage that we had converted from a steel shop into an apartment. We were eating rice and beans. Like my student loans are a whole thing. We just, it was like hard. Right. Yeah. And, um, I worried a lot. Like I couldn't take her to the park cause we lived out in the middle of nowhere and we couldn't really afford the gas there and back and, you know, 20 minute drive to the closest place. So we would like hike in the backyard and, and that, but I, like, boy, this kid is never going to go on a vacation. We're never going to have a normal life. Like, she's going to remember how, you know, not great of a parent I was. Or I would fuss about, like, she doesn't have enough variety in her dinners. Or we don't even have a dinner table. Like, this kind of thing. So I started working in real estate. And I, very quickly, and that's the whole thing, but I, I specialize in student housing and affordable housing. 
So affordable housing is DSS Section 8, that kind of thing. So one of the things I'll do is I will help someone go in and rescue an owner. So there will be like a Section 8 building with 10, 20, 30 units in it that's just a horrible condition. And one of my buyers will come along and want to buy it. And then the job is to figure out how to stabilize this building. How do we keep good tenants that are in there and make it better and try not to destroy, you know, shuffle them around and like repair their kitchen and then move, whatever. You're stabilizing an affordable housing building. In doing this, I saw things that I have never seen. Um, and, and you're spending a lot of time in somebody's home, like getting estimates done, talking to them about issues that they have with their living situation, what works in here, what doesn't, um, you know, what do you need help with? And so even just information gathering, you're spending a lot of time. So I have seen children who are happy in homes where there are heroin needles on the floor. Um, and I have seen siblings playing together while their parent is passed out on the couch from alcohol or drugs or something. And I've mm. seen children with no food. Um, one of the worst things I saw was there was a chicken on the table that the children were eating and there were maggots in it, like visibly forming oh in the, yeah. And, and so I was with a home inspector and the home inspector immediately took the chicken and threw it out and gave the oldest brother, who was a teenager, $100, just a $100 bill out of his wallet. And he said, go get food right now. I'm going to finish the inspection. You'll be back here in 15 minutes. And the kid ran to the store and came back with like a rotisserie chicken and stuff, you know. So right. I saw things that I was like, it, it put massively in perspective for me what good parenting looks like. And, and I think... What it really is, is whether or not you care. Does that make right. sense? Like, it's amazing what children can live through. And it's amazing what they can forgive you for. And I'm not saying you should use this to do evil. I'm saying, like, I completely stopped worrying <laughs> about my kid not going to the park. Because, again, I saw happy kids with crack pipes. Like, there was one inspection we did where there were, like, crack pipes stored under the crib mattress. Or whatever those were. I don't know. Whatever. And so right. it's like... These kids were surviving and, and I'm not saying that anyone should go live their life like this, but like they loved their parents. And I realized that you can, you can do a, a pretty bad job. Like you can doubt yourself a lot and your kids can still be okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like kids who are way worse off still come out okay. Like I've seen older teenagers who the parents are just, you know, maybe they have no teeth, maybe they have no clothes, maybe they're not coherent, maybe they're not. And the teenagers are like lovingly caring for their parents. And yeah. it was such an eye opener for me that like kids are resilient. And I don't know, I don't know what the point of that is, but I stopped worrying about whether or not I was doing okay. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. Kind of going off of that and the story you were sharing, which made me think about something I had thought about now this. Okay. So this is, this is like my last question because I feel like I'm I'm hogging the, the question spot. But um, so this might sound bad, but it's not it's not really coming from a place of like it actually being bad. Um, just bear with me. So how would you perceive it if a parent was well off? Like say say for example, like I was well off, and I didn't want my child to not be well equipped and i feel like having a lot of stuff and having a lot of resources would kind of 
not help them equip for them to stand on their own unless you're like setting setting things up for them in the background like for example like um investings and things like that but like say for example their upbringing you're not really you're not really letting any of that come to the forefront so from their perspective it's like oh we're not really that well off like you're not living like in a poor neighborhood or anything like you're you're in a safe neighborhood and you're you don't have you're not living in in luxury right what is your perspective of a parent hiding their financial stability so that their child can not be consumed by material things is that in your perspective wrong or do you think it's strategically or is that like unusual yeah i have a lot to say on this topic because this is what i can okay so i guess it's my my quick answer and I, i won't take too long but my quick answer would be that it depends on how they do it like you know the the company that owns dr pepper they're a bunch of Christians and I uh-huh. can look it up. They donate like an astronomical amount. They all drive used Hondas and they donate a ton and they don't give their kids anything. And like they, they bought their kid. There was like some story about how their kid was driving like a used Honda with no bumper. Um, yeah. these, these families are like billionaire or whatever. I don't know how much Dr. Pepper is worth. Um, but you know, you can look up this family and, and that's what they did. Right. Um, so I, yeah, I mean, when you read it on paper, you're like, yes, that is the way that ought to go. My parents were really poor and then they got a divorce and then they both started doing better. My mom got a pretty good job and then she married my stepdad, who's a teacher. So like, you know, neither of them were, she had decent money. He had teacher money, you know, and good benefits. So it was very stable. Right. And then Mm -hmm. my mom moved up in the company she was in, became a director, her income increased. And then they had two more kids. So when I was 14, they had one of my brothers. And then when I was 17, they had another one of my brothers. So when I was 14, my parenting was over. That was it. Like that's if I wanted a haircut or clothes or to go on a school field trip or to take driving class or anything, that was all on me. So the reason for that was my parents were suddenly more stable than we'd ever been, but they had two babies to look after. Right. And so it was like immediately my oldest brother and I were just like orphans, like financial orphans, you know, and it was like. It, it got so bad that my parents, I had been self-sufficient for a long time. I had a job. I was doing my own things. And then uh, came time to go to college. And of course, the college is like, oh, yeah, no, your parents just will sign on these loans. I'm like, okay, cool. And my parents are like, no, we have other kids to raise. We're not signing on your loans. And I'm like, oh. Uh, so my dad ended up co-signing. And he said, I'm going to do one year. I'm going to co-sign. This is not them taking out loans. He co-signed a private loan through M&T Bank for 30000 and he said, I'm going to co-sign on this. You have one year to figure this out. And after that, that's that's on you. Okay, so my freshman year, go through, have this kind of like, at least my loans are done. And all four, I have four parents. All of them are well off, right? Like my dad's side was, you're going to figure this out on your own. My mom's side was, I don't even have time to talk to you about this, right? Right. At the end of my freshman year, the bill comes in for my sophomore year. If you want to come back, here's what you got to do. So I start making phone calls. I know the deal. My parents are not going to be involved in this. There are literally no resources. None. I cannot take out a private loan without a co-signer. I'm not qualified for any financial aid because my parents make too much money and are on, like I'm still on their tax return. So I ended up going down to the financial aid office in tears. And I didn't even know like this, they had all the students at the front that were like the work study students. And I was just crying. I said, I can't come back. Like, I don't know what to do. And they said, well, talk to Tom. Tom's the director of financial aid. I went in the back and I just started crying. Like, Tom, I'm crying. I'm like, I'm sorry. I don't know what to do. I'm so lost. I don't have anywhere to go back to. Like, my parents were not, they had already, I'd moved out when I was 17. 
this is getting too long. Oh. Okay. I'd moved out when I was 17. There was no other option. I was in school in New York City. Like, there's no, the, you know, I'm not going back to Rochester, blah, blah, blah. Tom walked me through the steps of emancipation, which was a very traumatic, like, financial and legal emancipation, because New York State doesn't recognize it until you're 24. Um, so it was like a horrible process. I had to go get teachers saying that I had been financially independent since I was 14. I had to have my pastor write a letter. I had to have all these, you know, and then I had to sit in front of a committee wow. and sort of convince them that I was a financial orphan, <laughs> that even though my parents were making a combined like $300,000 a year, I didn't have access to any of it. I had to show bank records showing that they had never sent me money for food or rent. I had to have my bosses show that I'm working in a blah, blah, blah. So I took out, I got a bunch more financial aid once my emancipation went through, but I was also able to sign on my own loans without a co-signer. I left school with $90,000 in debt for my undergrad. Um, and then I married a man whose parents were really poor. So like they were much more emotionally supportive, but they were financially incapable, right? So the two of us together had $120,000 in debt and no help whatsoever. Our minimum student loan payment was $15.50 a month back then. And it was like, do or die. <laughs> he was working for a company crawling under trailers and I was waiting tables at Chili's and it was like, do or die. And now we are very stable. We both make really good money. We don't let anything. So I guess the point is like, in the end, it worked out so that I'm an incredibly brave and self-sufficient person, but the intent was not good. Like, when I look back at my parents, I go, I will never do that to my kids. So what my kids don't know is that we have investments lined up for them in properties. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to make them. I will co-sign their loans, but they are all going to be in their name. I am not paying for their college. But because all of my friends who had parents paying for their college, they just did not care. I did math. Mm -hmm. I knew that each class was $700 every time I walked in the door. So if I was sick, right. you better believe I was there because I was not flushing $700 down the toilet, right? Yeah. So my friends just didn't care. They, they didn't, they, they had no, they didn't have to go through the phone calls of trying to figure out how to come back the next year, right? And so anyway, I want my kids to have something like that experience, but I will never let them fall on their face like I did. Does that make sense? So somewhere in there is your answer. <laughs> like, yeah, that makes sense. It makes know, sense. Doing it. it Sorry, that's all we have time for today. I have to go have meetings with people about things to meet about. If you'd like to hear more about the Steph saga, stay tuned or send us a message. I'm sure she'll be happy to answer any more questions about college tuition and emancipation, etc. Anyways, thanks for listening. Share these links. Catch you later.